Please turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. And I'll read for you verses 1 through 17. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God These are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Things often come to us in in sets. Have you ever noticed this? You'll hear a song, you'll hear it again, you'll hear it again, you'll hear it again, you'll see a car, you'll see the same kind of car again and again. Certain questions come to your mind. People ask you questions over and over again through a period of time. And I've had that experience recently. I've had several occasions lately to think about this question. How can I know if I'm a Christian? My son Isaiah uh, is out in children's church. He's 10. And he recently asked that question. Papa, how can I know if I'm a Christian? And I had to run out to a meeting. It was dinner time. And this is one of the benefits of having uh, others live with you. So Jake, where's Jake? Jake's in children's church too. There you go. Uh, I said, I said, Isaiah, that's a great question. Jake, answer it for him. I've got to go. And uh, and he did. They had like a 
I don't know, an hour conversation. Well, how long did they talk? A long time. And, uh, and I trust Jake to direct my son well. Uh, I've had older people ask me that recently. How do I know if I'm a Christian? I've been in church all of my life. I, uh, I've grown up in a Christian kind of world. But how do I really know if I'm a Christian? I've had younger men say the same thing. How do I know? What can I grab hold of? How can I know if I'm a Christian? And I've also had it sometimes when I'm talking to people who profess to be Christians and they say they're Christians but who seem to be no different from the people who don't profess to be Christians. When it comes to their basic assumptions about the world and about life and the way that they respond to things and the way that they react to things, I ask myself, what am I seeing here? How can you know? How can you know? If you're a Christian, how can this person know? And that's a very uncomfortable question to ask. There are some questions that we would rather not ask because we're afraid of what the answer might be. You're afraid to go to the doctor to get that, that exam. Everyone's telling you, it's time, go get that exam. You're afraid to do it because you're afraid of what the answer is going to be. You're afraid to have your your house inspected for termites because you have suspicions but you think if you never get the real answer you won't have to deal with it. But why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't we want to examine ourselves? Why wouldn't we want to obey God? God commands us. He says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Why wouldn't you want to do that? God gives us commands because He loves us. Why wouldn't you want to obey that one? J.C. Ryle was a, uh, a bishop in the Anglican Church back when there used to be good bishops in the Anglican Church. He was in the 1860s, into the 1800s in, in uh, London, I think it was. And he said this, If your heart is right in the sight of God, you have no cause to flinch from examination. If your heart is right, you have nothing to worry about. If it's wrong, the sooner you find it out, the better. And so this morning, we're going to use this passage from Romans 8 as, a, as an examination tool. You have to use it. You have to examine yourself in the light of what God says here about what a Christian really is. What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does the Holy Spirit tell us plainly about what it means to be a Christian in this passage? Some of you are going to be discouraged this morning some of you are going to be discouraged who should be discouraged some of you are going to be discouraged who shouldn't be discouraged and some of you who are, are not going to be discouraged who should be discouraged you'll know what I mean at the end so what does it mean to be a Christian well what does God say here number one I'm going to give you 13 things I didn't want it to be 13 because that's a, you know, but there's only 13 things. So, Number one, a Christian is free from condemnation. Look at verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Really, this is an objective statement, isn't it? He is not, uh, 
He's not talking about something inside of you. He's talking about something outside of you. There is no condemnation. He's talking about God being a judge. God does condemn. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. It's an objective statement. And really, this is something about you that you must believe if you're a Christian. Is it possible for you to be, in reality, free from condemnation and yet feel like you're under condemnation? Is that possible? You've all been there, haven't you? It is possible to be completely free from God's condemnation, as far as God is concerned, completely free from condemnation because of the work of Jesus Christ, and yet for us to feel like we're condemned. Now, does that mean that you're not a Christian? Is assurance, is confidence of this fact that you're, that you're free from condemnation, so wrapped up with saving faith that you can't be a Christian unless you're completely sure that you never have doubts, you never have feelings of condemnation. Is that the way it works? It's not. It is possible to be free from condemnation and not feel like you're free from condemnation. But God is saying something here that you must believe. God says that if you are in Christ Jesus, that means that if you are a Christian, you are free from the condemnation that you know your sin deserves. Will you believe this? Will you trust God in this? Will you continually insist that, no, I feel like I'm under condemnation, therefore I must be under condemnation, even though I know I'm a Christian? Will you continue to doubt God? Or will you believe it? Do you have a sense of freedom from God's condemnation for your sin? This sense of freedom from condemnation is not automatic. That's why he has to tell us this over and over again. The things that we have to hear over and over again, God tells us over and over again. And you have to take it and tell yourself over and over again. The Christian is free from condemnation. It is not automatic. But do you have any sense of freedom of conscience? Do you have any sense that your sins are covered? How blessed is the man, Psalm 32, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Do you have that sense? There is something about being a Christian where you might have times of, of feelings of condemnation and guilt, but there's something there. There's something that you have latched onto. There's something that you've grabbed a hold of. There is forgiveness for sin. There is freedom from condemnation. And I believe it. Do you believe it? Now, you might be thinking, I believe, objectively, that everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a Christian, just like it says in verse 1, everyone who is a Christian is free from condemnation. Yes, that's what it says. But, again, how do I know if I'm a Christian? That begs the question. Christians free from condemnation? Fine. I believe that Christians are free from condemnation. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, let's keep going. Number two. A Christian is able to obey God's law. Look at verses 2 through 4. 
For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see what God is saying here? He says that if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are free from the law of sin and death. Death is not your master anymore. Sin is not your master anymore. And instead, more than that, you're now under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is your master. Life is your master. And what does that mean? It means that if you're a Christian, you're able to obey God. He says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, what was it that the law could not do? What does the law do? The law stands out here above you. It is the perfect standard, the perfect reflection of the perfect character of God. And the law is holy and righteous and good. And it stands above you. What's it do? Does it enable you to obey it? The law never enables you to obey it. It shows you your sin. Paul says in Romans 7.7 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law shows you your sin. More than that, Paul says in Romans 7, the law doesn't just show you your sin, the, the, the law arouses your sin. It stirs the pot. It causes the junk to rise to the surface. And it condemns you. All that the law could do is show you your sin and stir up your sin and condemn you. It could never empower you to obey it. And so the law is not able to make you obey God. It's weak through the flesh. It's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with you. Your flesh is weak. So when the law comes to you, all it can do is condemn you. So what's it say? He says here, what the law could not do, couldn't make you obey God. It couldn't empower you to obey God. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? He says, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ came, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died the death your sin deserves. Why? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He is saying that if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are able to obey God. God did what the law could never do. He sent His Son to live a perfect life, to die the death that your sin deserves, to rise again from the dead, and to give you the ability to obey Him. He's talking about everyday, run-of-the-mill, Christian obedience. Walking. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here's my question for you. Are you able to obey God? 
Do you find the Spirit of God working in you so that you read God's commandments and you hear God's commandments and you love them? Do you find God's Spirit working in you so that you want to obey? Do you think that that desire, that that growing desire to obey God comes from your flesh? Do you even have that desire? Do you find in yourself, because of the Holy Spirit at work in you, the power to do what God says? Now, does that mean that you must have perfect obedience? Of course it doesn't. We are being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ progressively, but if you have no desire and no ability at all to obey God, then you need to seek God's face and call on Him and turn to Him. Because God says that Christians have the ability to obey God. This is how we know who the sons of God are, John says, First John. It's those who keep His commandments. Number three. A Christian has his mind set on the things of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So ask yourself this question. What is your mindset? What is the filter that you pass everything through? What's the grid that you, that you read everything through? The lens that you look at life through? What's the key that decodes life the meaning of life for you? What's the, the filter? What's the code that interprets everything? What's your mindset? Do you filter everything through the filter of money? Is everything ultimately about money for you? Do you decode the meaning of every event through the key of success? I want success this is what's going to get me success. This event has come that's going to hinder my success. Do you find your mind fixated on yourself? Do you live as if the whole world is just a bubble that exists and floats around around you? That you're the center of the world. You're the center of the universe. The people float into your bubble and they float into your bubble for you to use them, for you to take advantage of them, for you to either be accepted by them or to be rejected by them, for you to... It's all about you. Is that the, the mindset? When your mind goes into neutral, where does it go? You all know what I mean, right? You're driving down the highway, or you're just, you know, vegetating, and your mind clicks into neutral, and what is that gear? What's going on? What's going on in the back of your mind when your mind slips into neutral? What are the worries that keep coming up? What are the things that keep pressing themselves forward? What's the background noise that you constantly have playing back there? So that when everything quiets down, that's what you hear. What's your mindset? When you're faced with hardships and trials, and you, you're struck, like, like your knee is struck 
by the doctor's little mallet and your reflex kicks. What's the first kick when the, when the mallet of hardship comes? What is the constant background noise in your life? Is it the presence and the power and the holiness, the face, the gaze of God? Or is it your own lust for money, for importance, for ease, for power? What is it? Be honest with yourself. God says that those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Do you ever set your mind on the things of the Spirit? If you do, then it's because you are according to the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you don't, then it's because you're still according to the flesh. And that means you're not a Christian, that you've not been made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're according to the flesh. Number four. A Christian has life and peace. Verse six. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you have a sense of life and peace? Do you have a sense of vitality, energy, power? Do you have a sense of peace before God and under God and from God? The result of having your mind set on the flesh is death. All of those things that you think are so important, all of those things that you you are obsessed with are things that ultimately will completely kill you. But the result of having your mind set on the Holy Spirit is life and peace having your mind set on the things of the Holy Spirit. Do you have a sense of life and peace? Or do you have a constant cloud of death? Number five. A Christian is able to please God. Verses seven and eight. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So God says that the person whose mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God. God is his enemy. He doesn't like God. He hates God. He's against God. He's not able to subject himself to the law of God. He doesn't do it and he's not even able to do it. And he cannot please God. By implication, the person whose mind is set on the spirit is friendly towards God. He's not hostile towards God. He is able to subject himself to the law of God. He wants to do it and he's able to do it. And he is able to please God. So which one are you? Think about yourself. Do you see God as your enemy? The one who who is against you? Is it hard for you to spend time in the presence of God? Do you love the things of God? Do you seek after the people of God? Do you seek after the word of God? Or do you recoil every time someone speaks to you of God and of the things of God? You don't want to go there. You don't want to talk about that stuff. Talk about anything else in the world. Conversation comes up that has to do with you and God. 
and you resist it? Or do you want to please him? Do you find yourself melting before him? Wanting to please him? Seeing him as someone you want to be with? A Christian wants to please God. Number six. A Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him. Verse nine. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Really, this verse is the key to understanding everything else he says. It's the key to most of what God says here in this passage. The Christian has the Holy Spirit. The Christian has the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. Now look at his logic. He says there's two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people. There are those who are in the flesh and there are those who are in the Spirit. Everyone in this room right now is either one or the other. You cannot be both. He is not talking about two kinds of Christian. A Christian who's in the flesh and a Christian who's in the Spirit, but ultimately they're both Christians and they're both going to heaven. That is not at all what he's saying here. There are two kinds of person in this room. Those who are according to the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh. Those who are in the Spirit. Those who are not Christians and those who are. And he says, if you're in the Spirit, then you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. If you're, not in, the, if you're in the flesh, then you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. If you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, then you do not belong to Christ. If you do not belong to Christ, then you're not a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit. There are no Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit. And that is the key to all of these other things. The person who has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him will be a different person than he was before the Spirit came. He won't be different in the sense that every aspect of his personality will change. When, uh, when Chris Connell became a Christian, he was still Chris Connell, I think. And yet everything changed. Everything that's important changed. You'll be different in the sense that his, your desires will change. What you love will change. What you're able to do will change. Because like I said before, you'll be able to obey God. Your mindset will change. The person who has the Spirit is different than the person who doesn't have the Spirit. And those changes do not make you a Christian, but being a Christian makes you change. Because if you're Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works. Number seven. Connected to that, a Christian is enlivened by the Holy Spirit. Verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Some of you, your bodies feel dead. Every day it gets worse. So what God says, this, uh, this, our bodies, this tent we carry around is decaying day by day. You're, you're dying. And yet he says that if you have the Holy Spirit, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Do you have that sense of life? Number eight. A Christian is under obligation to live according to the Spirit. Verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Notice what he says here. He clearly says that Christians are under obligation. There are many people who will teach you that Christians are no longer under any obligation. They say that since we are made right with God on the basis of faith apart from works, what that has to mean is that the Christian is free from obligation, that there is nothing that a Christian has to do. Obedience is good when it comes. Obedience is a blessing. Things will certainly go better with you if you obey God. But ultimately, it's not an obligation. Maybe some of you believe that. But what does God say? He says, so then, we are under obligation. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And the clear meaning of that is that we are under obligation to live according to the Spirit. It is not optional. Obedience to God is not some nice addition to the Christian life. It is the Christian life. This is how you'll know who the children of God are. The children of God keep His commandments. If being a Christian means having the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, if you can't be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, giving you life, giving you power, giving you the ability to obey God and to love God and to please God, then life and power and love and obedience can never be optional for you. They are the proof and the demonstration that you have the Holy Spirit. Don't let anyone tell you ever That you can be a Christian, that you can be a Christian who has Jesus Christ as his Savior, but does not have Jesus Christ as his Lord and Master. You cannot cut up Christ. He is Savior and he is Lord, and you are under obligation. It's not a second decision that you make somewhere else down the road. A Christian is under obligation to live according to the Spirit. Number nine. 
A Christian kills his sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's one of the clearest statements of the life and death consequences of having the Holy Spirit and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. God says that if you continue to live according to the flesh, you must die. If you call a truce with your sin, if you continue to indulge yourself, if you claim that obedience to God is not a necessary consequence of salvation by God, if you lay down your arms, if you give up the fight against your sin, God says you must die, you will die. And everything in the context of this passage insists on the fact that he is talking about going to hell. Death is the result of being enslaved to sin. Death is the result of having your mind set on the flesh. Death is the result of being hostile to God, being the enemy of God. He is not talking about God disciplining His children by taking them home early. He's talking about going to hell. It is so easy to diffuse and water down and completely make this mean nothing to us. Because we say, yeah, 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 if I sin, if I continue to sin, if I don't put my sin to death, I know that, that uh, God might kill me early. Well, what does that mean? Well, then I get to go to heaven early. But I get to go to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. If you call a truce with your sin, you must die. And if your life is characterized by continued enslaving sin, and if you refuse to fight it, and if you call a truce with it, and if you organize your life so that maybe even it looks like you're fighting it, but ultimately you know that in the end you are going to lay down your arms and give into it, you know it's a, it's a premeditated, calculated plan. You've called a truce. If your life is characterized by continued enslaving sin, and if you refuse to fight it, you are not a Christian. I know that some of you are going to hate me for saying that. But I'm only reading the Bible to you. If it doesn't mean that, what in the world does it mean? But on the other hand, those who, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in them, because they're Christians, those who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, they will live. Listen to me. If this strikes you as strange, if this seems odd to you, if this, if this goes against what you have always thought, Wake up and read the Bible, because that's what the Bible says. There is no salvation apart from obedience. There is no salvation apart from obedience. None. 
That does not mean that your salvation comes because of your obedience. What it means is that your obedience comes because of your salvation. Life bears fruit. The Holy Spirit of God bears fruit. If there is no fruit, there is no life. How could it be that such a simple fact of, of the nature of things, it's a, a simple given. Every one of us who grows a garden or has house plants, it's a simple fact. If there's no fruit, there's something wrong. There's, the plant isn't alive anymore. How can it be that a, that a simple fact of the nature of things could be so obvious when it comes to growing tomatoes it'd be completely obscure when it comes to growing Christians how can we love it when it comes to one thing and hate it when it comes to the other a Christian is a man a woman a child who has the power of the Holy Spirit and who by the Spirit is in the constant ongoing process of putting his sin to death. Another time I'll, I'll focus on that and see what it means. But a Christian is someone who puts his sin to death. Number ten. A Christian is led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. What's he talking about? I don't think he's mainly talking about having subjective feelings that help you make decisions. You know, this is how we use this language. I was led by the Spirit to do this and such. I was led by the Spirit to make some kind of a decision to do this or that. He is not talking about making decisions. He's still talking about the same thing that he's been talking about the whole time. He is talking about obedience. A Christian is led by the Spirit of God into obedience to God. Obedience is the aim of the Holy Spirit in you. Don't ever think that you're being led by the Spirit if you're being led into sin. It doesn't matter how much you've prayed about it. It doesn't matter how much peace you have about it. The Holy Spirit is holy and He leads His people into holiness. And all of those who are led by the Spirit of God into holiness and obedience to God, these are the sons of God. Number 11. A Christian has the spirit of adoption and calls out to God as his father. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So which spirit defines you? Do you have the spirit of slavery that leads to fear? Or do you have the spirit of adoption as a son by which you cry out, Abba, Father? Do you think of God primarily in terms of a master whose whip you must avoid by being good when he's looking? Is that what motivates all of your obedience? Do you live under that kind of fear? Is that, is that the primary motivation for your obedience? There is a master who has a whip I'm his slave. If I don't do it right when he's looking, then he'll whip me or kick me out. So when he's looking, or 
Or do you love God as your Father? And is your obedience this growing fruit of knowing the majesty and the glory and the power and the authority and the holiness and the love of the God who has adopted you as a son by his free grace? Is that what moves you to obey him? Do you call out to God as your father? When I listen to many of you pray out loud in different contexts and different settings, it alarms me that many of you never call on God as your father. You never say father when you pray to him, at least not in public. Dear God, dear Lord, but never, oh, father. Why is that? Do you have the spirit of adoption by which you call out to God, Abba, Father? If you don't, you're not a Christian. Number 12, a Christian knows he is a child of God. A Christian knows he is a child of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. A Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him and the Holy Spirit is a person and the Holy Spirit talks to us. And the primary thing that the Holy Spirit says is this. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. He bears witness. He testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. Do you hear that voice? Not talking necessarily about an audible voice. God can speak and will speak as He chooses, but I am talking about a growing sense inside of you that you know that you're a Christian because you know you're a Christian. This is the only one in this list of things that is subjective, it's all inside. No one can look at you and tell. If the Holy Spirit is testifying to your spirit that you're a child of God. Do you have any experience of what God's describing here? Do you know? Ultimately, you know. You can't know it in contradiction to all of these things. But do you know? And lastly, number 13, a Christian suffers with Christ. Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And this is one of the ifs of this passage. There's a, there's a few of them. If you're a Christian, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're a Christian. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the misdeeds of the body. And here in verse 17, you're a Christian. If indeed you suffer with him, so that you may also be glorified with him. What does that mean? Again, it's not salvation because of suffering. It's suffering because of salvation. Those who are children of God, fellow heirs with Christ, brothers of Christ who stand to receive the same inheritance that's coming to Christ, 
That's what he's saying. Heirs of God, joint heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is our brother. Christ has gone before us. Those who are children of God, fellow heirs with Christ, those who are Christians, will suffer with Christ. How could it be any other way? The, the servant is not greater than his master. This is not a hypothetical statement. He's not saying, if you're a Christian, maybe, perhaps, possibly, potentially, as it were, in a manner of speaking, you might suffer. He says, you're a Christian. You're a child of God. If you suffer. Implication? If you don't, you're not a child of God. If you have no desire to suffer with Christ, how, do you, how can you claim him as your elder brother? If you have no experience of any suffering at all for the sake of Christ, how can you claim him as your father? This if has to mean something. And if your theology leaves no room for these ifs, your theology is bad. Throw it out. You're a Christian, you're a child of God, if you suffer with Him. And it could be that your theology is lulling you to sleep on your way to hell. Now listen to me. I said at the beginning, some of you are not discouraged right now, but you should be. Your life is one long delusion of denial. You really have no reason to believe that you're a Christian, but you refuse to examine yourself. You refuse to even ask the question. You have been taught that to question your salvation is to question God. You never questioned God. You prayed that prayer that one time, and you were taught five minutes later that if you ever doubt your salvation is because you're doubting God, doubting God's a sin. Never doubt your salvation. You're a Christian. You prayed the prayer. That's it. Go off and live your life. It doesn't matter how you live. You prayed the prayer. You're in. And you should be very discouraged right now. Because you need to wake up. And there are some here who are discouraged right now, and you should be. You are discouraged, and you should be. Some aren't discouraged, and you should be. Some are discouraged, and you should be. If you read these words, if you hear these words, and if you look at your life, and if, if before God, honestly, you come away thinking, you know what? According to this passage of Scripture, I'm not a Christian, and I've never been. I've been in church. I fit into that culture of church, but I've never known what it means to have power against my sin. I've never known what it means to have the Holy Spirit testifying with my spirit that I'm a child of God. I've never known what it means to have peace and life. If that's you, don't shove this word aside. Don't get angry. 
Thank God for his kindness because he is, he is convicting you and convincing you of your sin. Isn't that the kindness of God? If you're a sinner who has never come to God in repentance, even though you've always said that you are, that you have, if you're really genuinely someone who has never really come to Christ, do you think it would be the kindness of God to let you stay that way? False hope. False hope will kill you. Turn to God through Jesus Christ. The Scripture is here for a reason. This Scripture is here for a reason. These ifs are here for a reason. These warnings are here for a reason. They are here to drive you to Jesus Christ. You cannot have any of these things apart from Jesus Christ. So seek Him and turn to Him and come to an end of yourself and trust Him. I don't care if it's for the first time. Don't let some kind of embarrassment because people will know that all of these years you've actually been living a lie. Don't let that embarrassment keep you out of heaven and send you to hell. There is nothing more important than this. And there are some here this morning who are discouraged, but you shouldn't be. You, sh you shouldn't be discouraged because you do see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are concerned about your sin. You do fight it. You do feel the life of God working inside you to change what you love and you hate. You aren't the same person you used to be. You do have a growing ability to obey God. You do have a changing mindset that's turning to God. That's beginning to, to reorder the way that you even think about, about, about everything. You do have a sense of life and peace. You do call out to God as your Father. You do sense the voice of the Holy Spirit saying to you, you are a child of God. You do know what it means to suffer along with Christ. But you're still discouraged because you have none of these things to the degree that you want them. Listen to me, brother, sister. You would never want them apart from the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. The very fact that you want these things of the Spirit more than you have them shows that you have the Holy Spirit. You, you can't want what you hate. The person without the Holy Spirit hates these things. Of course you don't experience these things perfectly. Of course you don't. Of course you still sin. Of course you have not become perfect like Jesus Christ. You will but you haven't. You will when you see Him face to face. But you haven't yet. Of course. Of course you can continually need the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to convict you and to comfort you and to change you. And you see that work in you. And remember where God begins with us in this passage back in verse 1. He says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see these things working in you? And yet you still feel condemned? 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? If you believe it, then use it in your fight against despair. Use it in your fight against your sin. Despair will not lead to obedience. Hope in the promises of God will lead to obedience. Unbelief is the only sin that will seal your ruin. And despair is the perfection of unbelief. Some of you are in despair. Who shouldn't be? To refuse to rely on what Jesus Christ has already done is to reject your only hope. Some of you, some of you have even talked yourselves into the notion that despair is good because despair is humble. Nothing could be further from the truth. Your despair is only another name for your pride. Your despair is your stubbornness. How can it be possible? How can it possibly be humility for you to refuse to trust God when He commands you to trust Him? How can it possibly be humility when you refuse to lean on Him when He holds out His hand for you and you say, no, no. How can that be humility? So I say the same things to you who are discouraged but who shouldn't be. Turn to God through Jesus Christ. Stop looking at yourself. Start looking at Him. You cannot have any of these things apart from Christ. You must seek Him. You must turn to Him. You must come to an end of yourself and trust Him. And if you do, you will find Him there by His Spirit. You will. Dwelling in you, Working in you, enlivening you, empowering you, comforting you, strengthening you. Making you call out to your Father, fortifying you to suffer alongside your brother, Jesus Christ, who has gone before you, who has lived for you, died for you, and covered you with His own perfect righteousness, so that there is no condemnation. Come to Him. Even if it's for the first first time, come to him. Let's pray together.